Well, good morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you today uh, with grateful hearts uh, for all that you have done for us. And Lord, if we were to count all the blessings that we have, Lord, we would, we would be here a long time. Lord, we're just so grateful to you uh, for sending Jesus, for his death upon the cross, his resurrection, for his ascension, and for sending us your spirit and giving us your word. We pray uh, that you would guide us this morning, that you would teach us, that we would see things in your word, that we would see you in all your glory, in all your splendor, so that we might worship you more fully. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Got any uh, Rocky fans here? Okay. <laughs> any of you seen all of the Rocky movies? And how many of you? Okay, well, quite a few of you. Okay. Um, I was thinking about this as I was preparing the, the message. I had several thoughts come to my mind. And I was, last night, I asked my wife, I said, do you, do you remember when the first Rocky movie came out? And uh, she said, 1979. And I was thinking 78 or 79. It came out in 1976. You know what that means, don't you? I'm old. <laughs> uh, I was a teenager when that movie came out. And, uh, of course, coming out of that movie, I don't know any teenage boy that wasn't walking down the sidewalk going like this, you know, and thinking he was, you know, Rocky Balboa. And, but as you know, he lost that first fight. Of course, Rocky II came out, and he won the title from Apollo Creed. Then in 1982, Rocky III came out um, with uh, Clubber Lang, and uh, he was played by Mr. T. And what Rocky didn't know was uh, that Mickey, his, his trainer, was actually um, uh, scheduling bouts with cupcake opponents because he was afraid that Rocky was going to get uh, irrevocably hurt after the beating that he took with Apollo Creed those two times. And, um, and you know, Rocky had become a celebrity, so he didn't take training very seriously. And so he entered the fight, and he got destroyed, and it just messed him up. On top of that, Mick died. He had a heart attack. And so Rocky was lost. And eventually, Apollo Creed comes around and offers to train him for a rematch. And it took a while before Rocky's head got in it. But eventually, you know, he was following Apollo's lead, doing everything that he told him to do. And then the fight came. And in the first round, if I remember it correctly, you know, he just, you know, pummeled uh, Clubber Lang. Clubber didn't know what hit him. Second round, it was a different story. And the next thing you know, you see Rocky abandoning the strategy that Apollo had set for him. And Apollo was upset. He was, he said, what are you doing? You know, and if Rocky's response was, I know what I'm doing. You know, I know what I'm doing. You know, something like that. Okay. <laughs> and he said it several times and uh, it sure didn't look like he knew what he was doing because he was getting beat to a pulp. Um, but he did. And the strategy was to wear down Clubber, to let him just shoot. You know, he kept taunting him, said, you're not going to knock me out. You're not going to knock me out. You know, and so he just kept wailing and wailing. And, and, of course, he got tired. And Rocky then turned up the heat. And 
wore down Clubber and won the fight. And next thing you know, we're staring at Rocky IV. Um, so, but one could get the impression from reading the events leading to the crucifixion that Jesus was on the ropes about to go down in defeat. But he too knew what he was doing. You know, despite how it looked then and how it would look to anybody who just reads up to the crucifixion, Jesus was not a punching bag. He was not a helpless victim. He was a sovereign savior who was in full control of all the details leading up to the cross and our redemption. So this morning, we're going to work through the first 27 verses of chapter 18, and we're going to note Jesus' sovereignty in the details of this passage. And the reason why I want us to do that is because we have to be absolutely sure that Jesus is not only who he says he is, but everything that he said he would do, he has done, and he has done so perfectly, and therefore it engenders our trust. He is worthy of our allegiance. So, but before we do that, let's look at the setting. If you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 18. And uh, the setting is kind of given to us there in verse 1. And I'm going to be reading out of the English Standard Version. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now, because it was the, the night before the Passover, Jesus and his disciples would have had the light of the full moon as they made their way to the Garden of Gethsemane at the foot of the Mount of Olives. Now, I, I, again, because we're 2,000 years removed, sometimes it's hard for us to kind of picture or imagine what it must have been like or where Jesus was. So I've put a few pictures up on screen um, so that you can kind of get an idea of what we're talking about. Here's the city of Jerusalem. And um, here's the Mount of Olives. Over here would be um, the temple. And this is the Kidron Valley. And so they were making their way along the Kidron Valley near the Mount of Olives. Now, this, is, this, this picture here is kind of skewed a little bit. So let's look at this one here. Here you can see uh, the pinnacle of the temple over here, the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives here. And so this is the path that they would have taken to the Garden of Gethsemane. What I thought was really interesting, I was thinking, well, what does it look like today? And here's a picture of this area. There, oops, I went too fast. Um, and this here you can see is the eastern wall of the city of Jerusalem. You can't see everything over the wall, but this is the area, the Kidron Valley here. Now, of course, in Jesus' day, there would have been a lot of olive trees, uh, thus the Mount of Olives. There would have been many, many uh, ancient olive trees there. There was also a small stream that flowed through the Kidron Valley. Actually, it was more of a 
wadi um, or a dry gulch um, because water did not go through it on a regular basis. But when it did, such as this time of year, it would have been reddish in color because it flowed down from the temple. And during the Passover, thousands of lambs would be sacrificed and their blood would make it to the stream and flow down which makes it very interesting that this is where Jesus is going the night before the Passover, the night before his crucifixion. So in verses 2 through 14, we first see Jesus' sovereignty over his betrayal and his arrest. Now I know to some degree we, we know that this is probably true, but sometimes we can look at Jesus as if he was a helpless victim. What I want us to see is that he was in sovereign control over his betrayal and arrest. Verse 2 says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. See, Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him. He predicted it. And he chose a place that he knew Judas would know to look. Because Judas had been there several times. You can check your cross-references and go to different passages of Scripture, and you can read about how Jesus and the disciples often frequented this place together. The words that we have there uh, translated band of soldiers, it's the Greek word spera. It's, it, it means cohort. Some translations may say a detachment. But a Roman cohort was about one-tenth of a legion, which would have been about 600 soldiers. Now, I don't know what you have thought of in the past about the people that came with Judas to arrest Jesus. I asked this question the other day and to a few people, and um, they said, I don't know, 20, 30. The reality is, is that if this was a cohort, if this was 600 troops, they probably had near to 1,000 men that came after Jesus on this night. Because you have to add in the temple guard and other officials and the servants that came along with them. So why such a show of force? And we can only speculate, but when you think about it, just a few days earlier, Jesus was marching into Jerusalem. Triumphal entry with shouts of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so maybe, maybe they, they expected that there would be hundreds, if not more, people surrounding Jesus, protecting him. Maybe they came at night with the torches because they were expecting, even though it was a full moon, that Jesus might be in hiding and therefore, they needed as many people as they could get to scour the, the countryside looking for him. We, we don't know. I, I tend to think it, it's Jesus' reputation preceded him. They heard about the miracles. And there was probably uh, some intrepidation and fear 
that was entering into their minds. And, and think of the irony, too, here. This is interesting. They came to find, they came, they came at night to find the light of the world. They, they came with soldiers and torches and weapons to find the Prince of Peace. It may look like Jesus was a helpless victim, hunted by the authorities, but in reality, Jesus was the one laying the trap for them. He didn't go to the garden to hide. He went there to be found. What looked like disaster was really all a part of the Father's plan. Verse 4. It says, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to him, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, don't gloss over those words Jesus knowing what would happen to him. Jesus knew full well what was about to happen to him. He knew full well what they were going to do to him, yet he went willingly. Jesus knew what was going to happen, but he went to the garden willingly. He knew that Judas would come looking for him. He knew that he would be arrested, and he knew everything that would follow that. Jesus was not passive at these events. He's not hiding in the shadows or hiding behind one of his disciples. He didn't reluctantly show himself uh, to those who came for him. He didn't submit to the authorities because he had no choice. He is the one who's directing the action here. Notice how Jesus took command of the situation by coming forward and initiating the conversation. Whom do you seek? He didn't wait even for them to ask. Now, John doesn't record uh, where uh, Judas's kiss and where, it, where exactly it happens here, but you clearly see Jesus taking command of the situation and approaching those who came to arrest him and asking, whom do you seek? And I think Jesus did this for, for a couple of reasons. One that becomes very clear to us in a minute, and that is, is that he desired to protect his disciples. The second reason is I think he's acting like a good lawyer. He, he's putting them on record as to why they're there, who are they trying to seek, and the illegality of it all. They're coming for him at night to put him on trial at night, which was illegal to do. They responded to him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus then answered them with two words. Two words, both in English and in Greek. Ego eimi. Jesus did not say, I am he, as is in most of our translations. He said, I am. He said, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, I am. The word he is not in the original text. Translators have inserted it into the text 
um, to accommodate modern English usage. Amy is the verb to be, translated I am. Ego, I, is not needed. To say I am, you would simply say, Amy. But when you insert the word ego, Amy, you do so for emphasis. It is as if Jesus is saying, I am, I am. Sound familiar? It's the same construction that he used that John records for us seven other times in the Gospel of John. It's actually used other times, but there are seven specific times where Jesus uses metaphors to describe himself. I am, I am. And it's the construction that mimics the construction in the Hebrew in Exodus 3.14, where Moses comes before the Lord, and the Lord had commissioned him to go to the people And he says to him, Lord, if they should ask me who sent me, what do I tell them? And he says, tell them, I am that I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. Of course, this construction became known as Yahweh, the name for God. No wonder they drew back and fell down. I think they, they knew enough about Jesus and to hear him utter these words here struck fear into their hearts. I mean, this was the very reason they sought to kill him in the first place because Jesus, they said, you being a man, make yourself out to be God. And they heard all the stories. They, they knew Lazarus was just raised from the dead And now they come before him to arrest him. And Jesus utters these words and they draw back and they fall to the ground. And it's interesting that while they're in retreat, Jesus in verse 7 asks them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So Jesus asks a second time, who do you seek? And if in, in so doing, you see that he's not only in control of the conversation, he's in control of his betrayal and his arrest Jesus once again tells his enemies, I am. I am the one you are looking for. So let these men go. The word let here is a passive imperative in the Greek. And it's often used uh, for a command or an exhortation. So when Jesus says, let these men go, Jesus is anything but a helpless victim. He is in total and complete control of the situation. And in saying this, Jesus not only ensures the safety of his disciples, but he's making sure that his own prophetic words come to pass. It says that, that, that of those whom you gave me, I lost not one. 
Peter, however, as usual, tends to make things very interesting. So let's take a look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Peter, ever the impulsive one, drew a sword. More than likely, it was a dagger or a knife. And he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. And you, you, you have to wonder, don't you? Why didn't he go for one of the soldiers? Why didn't he go for the high priest's servant? And, and didn't he know how to use a knife? I mean, if, if you're, if you're going to stab somebody, you're going to like that or, or maybe like that, uh, you know. He sliced off his ear. Folks, unless it's a zombie, you don't go for the head like that, you know. I, 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 yeah, I don't know. Anyway, but we shouldn't be too hard on Peter, okay? Because you know what? They were all thinking the same thing. In Luke chapter 22, we read, it says, And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? They were all thinking the same thing. Peter acted on it impulsively, but he acted on it. And then Luke goes on to say, and one of them struck the servant, we know who, of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And I just love that last verse because it's, a, it's an amazing picture of mercy and grace. Here was a man who came with a mob an army, if you would, to seek Jesus, to arrest Jesus. One minute he has an ear, another minute he doesn't, another minute he does. Jesus heals him, heals an enemy that came to arrest him. That's what Christ has done for us. Because we too were his enemies. We were sinners deserving a just punishment for our sins. And yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, he laid down his life to save us. And by his wounds, we are healed. You would think that Malchus and those around him would have come to faith in Christ in that very moment. You, you come to arrest Jesus, you lose your ear, and Jesus in his mercy and his grace touches you, restores your ear back to you. You would think you would fall on your knees and worship him. And that those around there would say, what are we doing? Why are we here? This man is, is not evil, but there is no indication that he or anyone else had a change of heart, which reveals 
the irrationality and the power of sin. And it also reveals how deeply their hatred of Jesus really went. Matthew records uh, Jesus saying this to Peter. Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Now at full strength, the Roman legion would be about 6,000 troops. So Jesus is saying here, I could could call for 72,000 angels minimum to come and fight for me. But he did it. Why not? Well, verse 11 tells us, Jesus said, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What is this cup? Well, Jesus spoke of it at the Last Supper, remember? He said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Jesus was pointing to his death on the cross, to his shedding of blood upon the cross for us and for our sins. In the Old Testament, uh, the cup is often referred to um, to describe God's judgment and wrath against sin. In the garden, just a few moments earlier, Jesus prayed to the Father and said, Father, if, it's, if it be possible... Remove this cup from me. It was something dreadful. So the cup that the Father had given to Jesus to drink was a cup of suffering. It was a cup of death. It was a cup of wrath against sin. And Jesus said, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me to drink? Jesus is not a helpless victim. He is a sovereign Savior willing to drink the cup that the Father has given to him to drink. Verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. See, Annas had been the high priest until he was deposed by the Romans. But according to Jewish law, the high priest could not be deposed because he was appointed for life. So most of the Jews viewed Annas as the rightful high priest, the true high priest. And so this is why they brought him to Annas and not to Caiaphas initially. And it says that they bound Jesus and led him to Annas. Think about that for a moment. Jesus, in full control, could have called 72,000 angels. He knew what was going to happen and everything else. And what we see here is that Christ allowed himself to be bound so that you and I might be set free from the bonds of sin.
He allowed himself to be handcuffed, so to speak, to be tied with ropes, to lose his freedom so that we could receive freedom, true freedom. If you're here this morning or you're watching online and you do not yet know Christ, you are not yet a a sold-out follower of Christ, I urge you, give your life to Christ this morning. He went through all of this, orchestrated all of this for you and for me. Jesus, though, was not only in control over every detail leading to the cross and to our redemption, he is in control over every detail of your life and my life. It may not seem like it at times, but he is in control even when things seem out of control. You know, this past week, you know, you you couldn't miss it, but you turn on the TV and Hurricane Ian coming in. People losing all their possessions. Some losing their lives. And it may seem nonsensical to us to think that God is in control, but he is in control. And and frankly, if I didn't believe that, I would despair of life because there's too many things in the world that that are going wrong. There's too much heartache and hardship and and hatred and all injustice that if if God was not in control, I would want to find a big rock and crawl underneath and never come out. And there's so many other things I could say about that, but whether it be hurricanes, sickness, death, financial hardship, relational conflict, it is comforting to know that God is in control. And he is in control of every detail of your life from the time you were conceived to the time you were born to the time that you die and step into glory and everything in between. So let me ask you, what are you facing right now in your life that requires you to trust God in and for? I I have no doubt that there are areas in our life right now that you find it difficult. I don't know, you don't know how you're gonna make ends meet. You don't know how this relationship is gonna end. You don't know how your kids are gonna respond. You don't know if so-and-so is going to come to faith in Christ or not. Whatever it might be, We need to trust him. You need to trust him in that thing. And it's clear to see as we look at this passage that even though it looked like things were out of control, that Jesus was a helpless victim, he wasn't. He was a sovereign savior who was in control over his own betrayal and arrest. But we can also see Jesus' sovereignty in Peter's denials. Look with me at verse 15. So Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the serving girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. 
The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Then the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. And I stop and think about this for a moment. Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him. And not only did he predict that Peter would deny him, but that he would do it this very night. And that he would do it three times. And that he would do it before the cock crows. I mean, Jesus, this, this wasn't a wild guess. There were several elements that had to come to pass for Jesus' prediction to come true. And verse 17 gives us Peter's first denial. Everything is playing out according to Jesus' plan, the way that he said that it would. And then suddenly, John cuts away. It's kind of like a movie or a TV show. You know, you're watching a scene, and then all of a sudden, boom, it cuts away to another scene. That's what John does here. And in this scene, we see Jesus' sovereignty before Anus. Verse 19 the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Anus then said to him, send him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, here, Jesus turns the tables on his enemies. He points out the injustice of what is taking place. It is as if Jesus is saying, hey, if you really wanted to know about my teaching, you could have listened to me. In fact, you could have called any number of people who had listened to me, who have heard me teach. The fact that you arrested me at night... And you're asking me now, on trial, in the middle of the night, which is illegal, reveals how much you really don't want to hear the answer. How much you really are not interested in knowing. Jesus is anything but a helpless victim here. So John now cuts back to the previous scene and records for us Peter's last two denials. And once again, we see that Jesus is demonstrating his sovereignty in his denials. Verse 25 says, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. 
So they said to him, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. And then one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. Just seems like Peter makes one mistake after another. He was a loyal but impulsive man. And once the cock crowed, his world came crashing down. Luke tells us in chapter 22 of his gospel, it says, immediately when, while Peter was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I mean, can you imagine the scene? Peter's in the courtyard. Jesus is now being led to Caiaphas. And somehow, in the midst of all of this, right after Peter, Peter's third denial, the cock crows. And at that precise moment, Peter turns his gaze in one direction as Jesus is going by and Jesus catches his eye. I can't even imagine what Peter must have been feeling. But I know that Jesus didn't look at him to rub it in his face. It was what I would consider an I told you so moment, but it wasn't because Jesus was, was trying to rub it in his face. I, th I think Jesus was wanting Peter to know, Peter, I'm in control. I told you this was going to happen. All these things must take place. It's all a part of the cup that the Father has given me to drink. But nonetheless, Peter's world imploded. And he goes out and he weeps bitterly. And he's thinking about just, just hours earlier where, where he, he promised Jesus, he said, Lord, even, even if all these other disciples fall away from you, I never will. I will never deny you. I will die for you. And Peter comes to the realization that he failed his Lord miserably. And why did he fail? It's because he overestimated his own strength and he underestimated his own sin. We too can fall into that trap. We can think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. In fact, Proverbs 16 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You know, back in John 15, Jesus, in teaching about the vine and the branches, 
comes out and says it as clearly as you can, apart from me, you can do nothing. We need to realize, folks, that um, we don't live the Christian life in our own strength. None of us can do that. We need to be We need to be dependent, totally dependent upon him. Draw strength from him. Praise God, though, this is not the end of the story. Not for Peter and not for us. In Luke 22, I don't know if you remember, I've shared this before, but Jesus tells Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. And once you have turned again, oh, he said, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus just didn't make a prediction about Jesus' failure. He entered into the battle He entered into the fray and he interceded for Peter and prayed for him that his faith would not fail. But once he has returned, that he would strengthen his brothers. You know what this tells me? Peter's actions did not come as a surprise to Jesus. And guess what? Neither do ours. None of our failures, none of our weaknesses, none of of our sins Take Jesus by surprise. He knows them full well. He knows our frame, and he is mindful that we are but dust. He simply wants us to trust him. So as I get ready to close this morning, have you trusted Jesus? Are you trusting him still? You know, Satan thought he had the Son of God on the ropes. He thought he was down for the count. He didn't realize that he wasn't a helpless victim. Rather, he was a sovereign Savior. He knew what he was doing. If you're here this morning watching online and you have not yet surrendered your life to Christ... I would urge you, be saved today. He's only a prayer away. Admit to him that you're a sinner in need of him to save you and to give you the gift of eternal life. Those who trust in him will never be disappointed. May we all gain great confidence and courage in knowing that Jesus is in control, not only of every detail leading up to the cross and to our redemption, but every aspect of our very lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning and for your word to us. Lord, I thank you that you are indeed a sovereign Savior. That, Lord, that you were in control of all of these details and events that eventually led you to the cross where you would lay down your life for us. Lord, you did so willingly. Out of obedience to your Father and out of great love for us, and I pray that we would just be captivated 
by your great love for us that we would desire to know you more, to love you more, and to want to serve you all the days of our lives. And we pray this all in Christ's name, amen.